surprise! <laughs> I'm preaching today <laughs> because um, uh, Pastor Steve and Mel are at home looking after the newborn. Um, praise the Lord that Mel had a very quick and smooth delivery and Zachary's very healthy. Um, but I heard that they had a pretty rough night. So, you know, it takes a bit of time to get used to being parents to a newborn again. So please be praying for them. Um, now we're going to um, read the Bible. So I'm going to ask Jen to come up and read the Bible for us. Hello, everyone. It's um, Luke chapter 2, 21 to 40. And I've been asked to read in the NIV version. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with that, uh, what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of God, or glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, in the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at, the very, at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Amen. Okay. Um, well, this is the second week of the Christmas series. Um, I wonder if you still remember what Steve preached on last week. Does anyone remember? <laughs> Christmas equals... Oh, good. Yeah, Christmas equals peace. Um, Jesus reconciled us to God and brought true peace to us. Um, today, he asked me to talk about Christmas equals hope. So Christmas equals hope because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made. But I know I'm meant to be talking about Christmas equals hope, but I'm going to do something a little naughty, okay? Instead of focusing on hope, we are actually going to talk about something that's closely related to hope. It's something that we do when we have hope. If hope is on one side of the coin, then this is on the other side. What do you think it is? 
we're actually going to talk about waiting. Waiting. Okay? I know it's different, but it's related. Okay. Hope is the certainty that God will bring about something good in the future. That's what hope means. Yet, because we're not in control of the timing, it's something that we need to wait for. So let me ask you a question. Do you think you are someone who is good at waiting? Are you good at waiting? Have you heard um, of the Stanford Marshmallow Test um, PowerPoint? Yeah, okay. Well, my sister, um, she lives in Taiwan and she has three children. A couple of years ago, when my nephew was about uh, 10 years old, um, she wanted to teach her son about delayed gratification. So I'd like to show you a picture of my sister and my nephew. Yay, that's my sister. Um, she said to her son, you can choose to play the iPad now for 10 minutes. Or if you wait for 15 minutes, only 15 minutes, then you can use your iPad for 30 minutes. Okay, if you play now, 10 minutes. If you wait for 15 minutes, you can play for 30 minutes. If that choice was given to you, what would you have chosen? She encouraged her son to wait 15 minutes, right? She's trying to teach him delay gratification so that he could get a longer playing time. But to her disappointment, her son said, mm, Mom, I like to use the iPad now. And it turned out that my nephew, he's actually quite a philosopher. Because when his mom asked him, like, why don't you just wait for 15 minutes and you can get 30 minutes of playing time? It's 20 minutes more than what you will get now. I'll give you one more chance. What would you choose? And he said, now. Um, he said to his mom, I know that I'll get a longer playing time, but I want to do it now. I don't want to wait. I don't know what would happen in the next 15 minutes. Maybe something might happen to me or something might happen to the iPad. Then I wouldn't even get the 10 minutes playing time. I thought that was a pretty smart thing to say for a 10-year-old, don't you? He understood the unpredictability of life at a very young age. We live in a culture of instant gratification and impatience. We get frustrated when, when websites take more than three seconds to load. Okay, I'm guilty. We complain when our parcel is one day late. We frown when we see the queue at the checkout counter. And I, once again, admit, when I see a queue, I sometimes would actually just quit buying or quit shopping because I, I just don't want to, you know, stand around and do nothing. I would never, well, actually, I live in Chatswood, but I would never, like, drive, like, into Chatswood on Saturdays, right? If you've been there, you understand how horrific the traffic is on Saturdays in Chatswood. I hate traffic jams. If you ask Ian, he used to get really frustrated at me because if I was sitting in, like, traffic, I would be like sighing and moaning like every few minutes. And he would be like, what's wrong with you? Just wait. It's actually pretty bad. But I'm, okay, I'm a little bit better now, thanks to Ian. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about how you feel about this, but I think it's actually a pretty serious problem. Not only did I hate waiting, when circumstances in life forced me to wait, I was really bad at it. I mean, we all experience periods of waiting in our lives. 
it's not so much about whether we have to wait or not. We all have to every now and then. But the real question is, who do we become and how do we spend our time when we wait, while we wait? Take the traffic jam, for example. I could complain and sigh as I wait, or I could use the time to pray, to reflect on the day or listen to an audiobook or talk to my husband. What we do while we wait actually matters. You know, sometimes we think, well, it's just, you know, everybody gets a little bit impatient. Like, it's not a very big deal. And we sometimes would laugh it off. But in reality, our inability to wait is actually indicative of a deeper spiritual problem. If we don't know how to wait well in small things, then how much will we struggle when we have to wait for really important things? John Piper points out, patience in doing the will of God is not an optional Christian virtue because faith is not optional and impatience is the fruit of unbelief. Impatience is actually the fruit of unbelief. When we are not willing to be in God's appointed place and go at God's appointed pace, then we will be tempted to do two things. Okay, so I really like this phrase, be in God's appointed place and go at God's appointed pace. But if we don't want to do that, if we're not willing to do that, then we'll be tempted to do two things. One, to give up waiting. And sometimes it could mean giving up on God because it's this bailout mentality. If I have to wait and get all frustrated, anxious and disappointed, then I might as well forget about it. I might as well forget about it. Stop waiting. Or two, we may try to take control of the situation ourselves and spend all our time and effort trying to remove the obstacles. But neither of these responses are response of faith. The Bible teaches us that we must learn to wait on God, not forget about it or try to force things to happen before the appointed time. The ability to wait patiently for the Lord because of the hope we have in Him is an important virtue for his people. In our passage today, okay, so um, please have Luke chapter two open if you can. Um, in our passage today, we get to meet a group of people who knew all about waiting. Luke chapter two, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. Simeon was a waiter. Okay. He had been waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises his whole life. That was the hope that kept him going. He was waiting for two things in particular, that God would send his appointed king, called the Messiah, or the name is, the, you know, like the term is the Messiah, so that's God's appointed king, that God would send the appointed king um, who would be the comforter or consolation of Israel. And secondly, that he himself would personally see the Messiah before he died. Simeon was someone who was good at waiting. But he was not alone. In the story, we also meet Anna, 
this time an old woman, 84 years old, who had been serving God at the temple day and night. She too was a waiter. We know that because she had close connections with others in Jerusalem who waited. In verse 38, we are told that after Anna saw Jesus and heard what was said about him, she went and told all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. So despite the fact that it had been a really long time, in fact, 400 years since Israel's last known prophet, Malachi, has spoken the final words of the Old Testament, God's people were still waiting. They had not given up the hope of seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. You know, when we read the birth narratives during Christmas time, like we're so familiar with it that it's really easy to just read it and go, mm hmm, yep, yep. But if we pause to think about it, the fact that there were still people waiting on God in the beginning of the New Testament is actually a really amazing thing. Let's think about this. For 400 years, conservatively speaking, that would be roughly about 20 generations. For 20 generations, Israel as a nation had not heard any new revelation from God. People had the Old Testament Bible, but they did not have a contemporary prophet, a new prophet, or a new word for 20 generations. It was a very long period of time. And let's not forget the Israelites weren't living an easy life. They had been living under foreign occupation all throughout that time. They were ruled by the Babylonians, followed by the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. They didn't have their own nation. They didn't have their own king. It would have been really easy for them to just forget about God's promises, wouldn't it? Like, I think it, it probably would have been easy for me. It would have been easy for them to, uh, to forget about God and just syncretize and assimilate with those around them. And it's not like their religious leaders were helping. Remember Jesus when he came, he's, he, what he said about the religious leaders. He said that the religious leaders of the Jewish people, they were turning the temple into a den of robbers. They weren't being good examples. They were hungry for power, control, and wealth. So how easy would it have been to just give up on their faith? How easy would it have been to just stop waiting on God? And yet, somehow, against all odds, when the angel appeared to Mary on that appointed day, though surprised, she quickly and obediently accepted the will of God for her. Why? Well, Mary knew and believed the promises of God. She, too, was a waiter. It's similar with Joseph. He knew about God's promises, so when he was told in Matthew chapter 1 that the baby inside Mary's womb was a fulfillment of God's promise that a virgin would give birth, he was obedient to God and married the woman. No questions asked. And what about all the unnamed others who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel, to the salvation of Israel? Where did their faith come from? Why had they not given up or forgotten about the promises? Why did they have hope? Dear brothers and sisters, not many of us are going to have our names recorded down in history. That's a sad fact. But we do and we can leave a legacy. So what kind of legacy will you leave? Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna, and all those who looked forward to the redemption of Israel. They were waiting on God because somebody taught them. Someone modeled for them. 
Someone shared God's word with them during that 400 years of silence. It was most probably their parents, their grandparents, and great-grandparents. They left a legacy. The generations before Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna, they came and gone without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. Yet the legacy they left behind for their children and grandchildren was their faith in God. They hoped in God. They trusted in God's faithfulness. And though they themselves did not see it, they passed on this hope to the next generation. So what about you? What kind of legacy would you leave? Would you pass down with your life? If your children observed your life, will they remember you as someone who waited on God, who hoped in God? Let's come back to the passage. We see that the faithful people of God waited on him. Yet not only did they wait on him, they waited well. They were good at waiting. Although God had not spoken publicly to Israel for 400 years, how did they spend their time while they waited? The passage tells us that they loved God and they served him faithfully. Verse 25, Simeon was someone who was righteous and devout. Verse 37, Anna was a widow who served God day and night in the temple, fasting and praying. And Mary and Joseph, their faithfulness was shown through their obedience to the law. Have you noticed in the passage that Jen read out for us that there was a strong emphasis on matters related to the law? In verse 21, we read that Jesus was circumcised. That's the first reference to the Old Testament law. Then in verses 22 to 24, Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem in order to perform the purification rites required by the law of Moses. This particular law comes from Leviticus chapter 12, which required a mother to make a sacrifice for cleansing 40 days after giving birth. Apart from performing the purification rites, Mary and Joseph also brought Jesus there to dedicate him to the Lord. Verse 24 emphasizes that Mary and Joseph were doing this because that was what was the Lord, what the law said. This law comes from Exodus 13, chapter 1, and Exodus 34, 19, um, that the firstborn sons belong to the Lord. And every Israelite family must pay a redemption price of five shekels, which is about $2. So it's quite cheap. <laughs> $2 to redeem their firstborn son back from God. At the same time, Mary and Joseph would could be dedicating Jesus to God like Hannah dedicated Samuel in the Old Testament. Then in verse 27, we are told that the parents were doing for Jesus everything that the custom of the law required. And lastly, in verse 39, Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of God. So you see, that's a lot of references to the law in a space of you know, a few short paragraphs. Why do you think Luke emphasized the law so much in this section? I think there are a few reasons. Okay. Number one um, is to emphasize that Mary and Joseph were godly, faithful people, just like Anna and Simeon. Mary and Joseph were devoted to God and his law. So this is not something that they just suddenly started you know, after Jesus was born. Um, this is something that they always did. They, they were devoted to God and his law as they waited. 
Secondly, and this is pretty important, I think it's to show that Jesus was a true Israelite and he went through everything that the law required, including circumcision, including being dedicated. So Jesus, you know, fulfilled all righteousness in regards to the law. And number three, I think Luke wanted to stress the fact that the faithful and devout Israelites recognized Jesus for who he really was. You see, like in John's gospel, in chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, John tells us that Jesus was the true light and that though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The world did not recognize Jesus when he came. And this was definitely true for most of the Jewish people and especially the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The Jewish people as a whole failed to recognize him and they rejected and crucified him. What this does is that it may cause people to doubt whether Jesus was truly the Messiah. If Jesus was truly the Messiah, how could his own people reject him? So maybe people would doubt. Maybe if God's people couldn't recognize him, then he's not the real Messiah. But no, we don't need to worry because in our passage today, we see that there was a group of people who did recognize him and they were the true Israelites. They were the true leaders of Israel because they waited on God. They were the faithful Israelites who were led by God's spirit to embrace Jesus, to accept him, and to recognize who he was. So we see um, this is what the passage is teaching us today. The true Israelites waited for God, waited on him, and that they were living godly and faithful, upright lives as they waited for him. And then the final point of this passage, I think, is this. When we put our hope in God and wait for him, we will not be disappointed or be put to shame. For Simeon, both of his hopes uh, were fulfilled. God did, in fact, send the Messiah, and he indeed got to hold the Messiah personally in his arms. By the way, did you notice the role of the Holy Spirit in this passage? The Holy Spirit was on Simeon in verse 25. Then the Spirit revealed to him what would happen in verse 26. And then the Spirit led him to the temple to meet Jesus at just the right time. In verse 27. Similarly, although it wasn't spelled out specifically, we can see that it was no mere coincidence that Anna was to witness this so that she could spread the message in verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Coming up at that very hour. I think the emphasis on the Holy Spirit shows us how active and powerful God is. He is the king of timing. His people just needed to trust him. He won't disappoint those who wait for him. At the right time, he will guide us, just like he did Simeon and Anna. The highlight of the passage would actually be verses 28 to 35. Let's read it again. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. So Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. At just the right time, in just the right way, God kept his promise to send Israel her comforter. The baby was the king that would be a light to the Gentiles. So he would be the savior of the Gentiles and he would be the glory of Israel. Simeon was so satisfied that he was ready to die. And Anna was so excited that she couldn't stop talking about him. Yes, there were still elements of mystery. Though the people of God recognized and accepted the baby to be the king, they didn't really know what kind of king Jesus would grow up to be. This king would in fact surprise them in many ways. He would be different to what they expected, but he would be better than what they would have expected. When things happen that they would not understand, they, just, they would just need to wait a little longer until all things are being revealed to them in its proper time. God will not disappoint those who wait on him. He is powerful and he is faithful. So dear brothers and sisters, as Christmas approaches, I want to ask you this question. Are you a waiter of God's promises? You know, we actually live in a very similar situation to the, to the faithful people of God back then. The biggest difference is this. They were waiting for the arrival of Jesus, and today we are waiting for? What are we waiting for? We're, yeah, we're waiting for his second coming. They were waiting for his first coming, and today we are waiting for his second coming. Have you seen the memes on the internet? I'll show you the first one. I'll be back in a minute. Repeat that for another 2,000 years. Okay. Um, and the next one. Um, okay, reasons Jesus will not return. Or um, the last word spoken by Jesus in the Bible, surely I come quickly. And it's been 2,000 years since he's spoken those words. And, you know, the, the person says it's nonsense from the Bible. Okay. I wonder if a, if a non-Christian colleague or friend showed you this meme and asked you, do you really believe that Jesus is coming back? How would you respond? Would you be feeling a little bit embarrassed? I'll be back soon. It's been 2,000 years. Would you be able to answer with a confident yes? Yes, he's coming back. Or would it be a weak, uh, mm, uh, oh, I hope so? Dear brothers and sisters, are you waiting for the king to return? Every year, we remember the first coming of Jesus as we celebrate Christmas. But sadly, we don't think about the return of Jesus nearly as much. But his second coming is actually our greatest hope. The fact that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, to bring justice, to bring eternal life, to give us resurrected bodies, to vindicate those who were persecuted because of him, and that he himself will dwell with us in the new heavens and new earth. That is our greatest hope. So I want to encourage you, use this Christmas, this season of hope, to think about his second coming. Think about it often. 
It will give us perspective. Um, I once watched this TV show about Taiwan, um, and it was like all these foreigners like sharing their observation of Taiwan. And it was really interesting to see what the foreigners thought about Taiwan. And one thing kind of stood out. I wonder if Joyce could um, guess what it was. But um, they all agreed that Taiwanese people love to stand in queues. That's pretty weird. Okay. See, they would even stand in queues in, on a rainy day. Um, and the funny thing is, when the foreigner asked people standing there, hey, why are you standing in the queue for? Some of them were like, oh, I don't know. It must be something good. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so, be so many people queuing, right? And the foreigner was like, oh, palm to the face. Why would you waste your time standing there without even knowing what you are queuing up for? Did, did you do that? <laughs> yeah, they actually did it, right? And the funny thing is, that's actually how some people feel about Christians. They ask the Christian, what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? Or, I don't know, something good? Are you sure you're not wasting your time? Dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, if you are doubtful or confused about Jesus' second coming and why that is our greatest hope, please find out about it. Okay, remember you got the summer seminar question thing? Write that down as the topic you want to know about. Or read a book, or come speak to me or Pastor Steve or anyone. The clearer we are of the hope we have, the greater the anticipation, the sharper the focus, and the easier it becomes to wait, especially when suffering comes. Hope is what will help us to persevere. So I want to ask again, are you waiting for Jesus' second coming? When we think about waiting, it can sound very passive because, you know, like, you just sit there and do nothing and wait. But real waiting, as we've learned today, is actually a very active thing. In a blog I read online, the blogger said this, passive waiting can take the form of cynicism, complaining, or simply doing nothing. Active waiting, however, is the posture that seeks to cultivate habits that are focused on intentional preparation. Active waiting is the posture that seeks to cultivate habits that are focused on intentional preparation. Waiting on God is an active thing because it requires you to, number one, trust in God's timing. Trust is an active process because you need to intentionally think about who God is and why he's trustworthy. Secondly, waiting on God is active because you need to guard your mind. People around us today think we are foolish or stupid for trusting in God. And we need to constantly fight off lies about God and replace it with the truth from the Bible. See, that's a very active thing. And lastly, while we wait, we need to be intentional in the way we live. Titus chapter 2 tells us this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be intentional in our preparation? It means that we must renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age as we wait.
So if people looked at your life now, would they be able to tell that you are actively preparing yourself for Jesus' return? Would they be able to tell that you are waiting for Jesus to return? Or would they look at your life and think, uh, I don't think this Jesus is coming back. Be like Joseph, Mary, Simeon, and Anna. Prepare yourself by living for God now. Don't live for money or your boss or holidays or convenience or comfort. And this is a hard one, but don't even live for your children. Nothing can come close to living for the glorious resurrected king. We must live for Jesus. We have been given an immense privilege and responsibility as God's people today. Just like the people who lived in the 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament, though we don't know who they are, God will not forget about them. God knows them. God will remember the fact that they ran the race, they kept the faith, and they passed it on to the next generation. From them came Joseph, Mary, Simeon, and Anna, and all the faithful remnant who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. Similarly, in our generation, in every generation, God is looking for faithful servants who would patiently wait on him, unswervingly hope in him, boldly teach about him, and resolutely live for him. Will you be that person for God in this generation? Also, will you raise your children so that they will become the Joseph, Mary, Simeon, and Anna of their generation? This Christmas, may we remember who we really are. We are a faithful people of God who hope in him, who wait on him, living godly and upright lives as we eagerly anticipate the second coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus himself said this in Luke 21, 28. Stand up and lift up our heads because our redemption is near. Let's pray.